Well, good morning. Can you show your appreciation to our worship team? Oh, man. So good. Thank you guys for leading us so well this morning. Good morning. My name's Colby. I'm one of the pastors here at Pillar Church, and I want to invite you to take out your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. In a moment, we're going to read verses 1 through 12 of Romans chapter 7, and we're just going to let God speak to us through His Word as we study it and are attentive to it. If this is your first time here, uh, it's great to, to see you and have you with us and to meet you. To those who I haven't really had a chance to speak to in the last 10 weeks, um, it's good to be back. It's good to be here. Hopefully you got your Bibles open. Let's read Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 12. And I'm ringing a little bit, I think, aren't I? I'll talk loud, so you can just leave her down there. I got a lot, a lot of energy this morning. <laughs> Verse 1. This is God's word. Or do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? Thus a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and if she marries another man, she's not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve not under the old written code, but in the new life of the Spirit. What then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would not have known what it is, heart, and what to be attentive to. Lord, how we can walk with you. Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would move in our midst and it would speak to us. Lord, it would move within us and it would, God, point us to a new belonging, a new life, a new fruitfulness, a new power from your Spirit that can cause us to live in a way that fulfills your purpose for us. And we pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. I came across the story of Walter Dixon recently. Walter was thought to have been uh, killed in action early in the Korean War as a 21-year-old. And uh, he, was, he was declared dead, and, uh, but he actually remained alive, captured behind enemy lines for a number of years. Well, in the, the StoryCorps episode from NPR, uh, he tells about his multiple attempts uh, to escape and what it was like uh, to be held as a prisoner of war. And then he tells about his uh, return home and the, what it was like after all these harrowing experiences to essentially return from the dead. <laughs> well, one of the complications in his life was that Walter had gotten married five months before leaving. And when he had returned several years later, his wife had 
of course, remarried and had just had a baby with her new husband. Complicated, right? I mean, this is like, this is, I was actually trying to think of movies where this is like the scene, right? There's multiple ones where this is like the, the idea at the heart of it, what's going to happen. And that sounds like a pretty complicated relationship scenario. Uh, eventually, Walter would have the original marriage dissolved and move on with his life and continue to serve in the military, earning seven purple hearts for his service. But the situation with the marriage stuck out to me as a unique example of how complicated things become when you don't know who you belong to. This is what Paul is really getting at here. It's this sort of complication that Paul is addressing in this passage as he talks us through the relationship of Christians as they seek to be faithful to God to this Old Testament law that the people of God felt like they belonged to. That there was this sort of calling to live in this new calling to walk with Christ by faith that was in some ways complicated by what was understood as this old relationship to the law. And so, we see this complication dealt with here in these verses as Paul is addressing this. Because if you back up for a second and zoom out, in the early church, and particularly here at Rome, we've noticed as we've been studying through this book, uh, you had Jewish believers who had come to faith in Christ and believed He was the Messiah, who grew up culturally in the midst of a law-keeping people, and then you had Gentile believers with little knowledge of that culture, and very separated from that, now all united as believers in the body of Christ, who had one salvation and hope through faith in Christ, but were very separated by this question of what do we do with the law. And here, as Paul is writing to the people at Rome, he's desiring to give them one unified, singular vision for their future together as the people of God so that they can have a united spiritual vision. But the relationship feels complicated. Similar to our our story. And so Paul wanted to help them understand how they can live together as one people of God going forward and pursue a genuinely spiritual life to the glory of God together. Well, over the past several weeks in our series on Romans, which, uh, you know, none of these guys want me to do this, but can you just show your appreciation to all those who preached over the last nine weeks? I've listened to the sermons and been so encouraged and just, I, I marvel that we're a part of a church where that many people can preach God's word so well. I mean, truth, truth be told, there are others even. But, but really, that flows out of a genuine love for God from those leaders for you, for, for us to be a people who honor the Lord and give ourselves to His Word and bring out from that. And it's, it's not so much about professionalized ministry as us being a community together who really trusts the authority of God's Word and lets it speak. And I just think the last nine weeks have been a testament to God's power and strength in working in that. And I'm so thankful for those who gave their time. Uh, to do that. But over the past several weeks in our series in Romans, we've made a shift. If you've been paying attention, if you're just catching up, that's okay. We've shifted from the topic of justification to the topic of sanctification. Now, those are like, you know, tricky theological terms. And if you're new to the Christian faith, sanctification 
is simply the aspect of God's salvation, God's saving work where He progressively is setting us apart from the power of sin in our life. I like to think of the ongoing work of sanctification in two regards. i got it up here, kind of a definition for you. Sanctification is this. God is working to save us from sin practically, both in its power over us in our daily life and its practice among us. Now, that, that is what God is doing. That's how we practically grow. It's, it's the part of God's work in our midst. God's salvation where He is working in us through His Spirit and His Word and His people to set us apart, to be a people that belong to Him. Where, where the power of sin is being loosened from us on a practical level. It's power over our lives and it's practice in our midst is progressively being loosened from us so we live to the glory of God. That's sanctification. Now, we've been, that's where we've been focused in on it, is how do we grow? How do we make progress in sanctification? And we've been thinking about that ever since we turned to chapter 6. Now, it was necessary because previous to that, in chapters 3 through 5, in many of the sermons while I was gone, were spent talking about this doctrine of justification. This different aspect of God's saving work. I got that up there too. This is the part of God's salvation where not because of our works, God brings us into His family. God saves us simply by declaring us righteous in our standing. He says, relationally, you were, you were enemies because of your sin, but because of Christ's work on the cross, your sins can be forgiven, you can be pardoned and free, and not because of your own works, but because you believe that I provided Jesus as your atoning sacrifice, you're, you're in right standing with me. You're welcome. You can come to my table. I see you as right. Judgment isn't remaining over your head. You're secure. You see, we went to great lengths, and Paul has gone to great lengths to convince us that that declaration, that justification, isn't based on our performance, but God's promise in Christ. But now we're looking at that, that part where he says, but now that new identity, we don't desire just to be be shackled in sin but to grow increasingly free to live in that identity and fulfill God's purpose for us to live righteous lives on a practical level and so he's showing us how do we move on in sanctification as people who have been justified by faith freely by the blood of Christ and not by our own performance what do we now devote ourselves to okay is everybody tracking with me so, Paul's point now in this passage, and we're going to see this, I'm going to try to make it real clear to you, is that we have this, compli- we, to do that, we have to deal with this complicated relationship with the Old Testament law and our relationship to Christ and what we set our vision on, where we turn our eyes in the, in the way that we apply ourselves to righteousness. And so he deals with that subject here in chapter 7 at the beginning with these Words. Paul's point is that God sanctifies those he justifies. 
Like you don't just get declared righteous and then left alone. That God continues to sanctify those who are united to Christ by faith and bring us on in this practical righteousness. And the way He does it is apart from the law, just like justification and our salvation came apart from the performance of the law. We are now sanctified apart from the law as we set our hearts and minds on Christ. This is what He wants us to see. But it raises the question, well, what is this relationship that we actually have to the law, right? Especially for those who were Jewish. This point seems radical to Jewish Christians and honestly relieving to the Gentiles, right? <laughs> like, whew, I don't have to go back into all those details. 613 laws in the Old Testament, some of them really complicated and overly seemingly specific if you're not living in that time, in that place, in that location, and so it creates a lot of confusion, even among Christians today. As we read the Bible, there's a little bit of like, what do I do with all that, right? Like, some of y'all love shrimp and bacon, barbecue, right? So if you just look at food laws, you get, what do I do with that? There are other more complicated laws, and, it's, and there's a lot there, admittedly. And it, and it begs the question, what do we do with that? What gain is there in it? But also what's new, what's changed, and how do I focus so that I can live a Christian life to the glory of God? And so, because of that, here at the beginning of Romans 7, Paul is seeking to free us from the law and unite the body of Christ, both Jew and Gentiles, around a singular spiritual vision where they can live in unity together and pursue God's calling for them. That's what he's doing. So this morning we're going to see that Paul gives us a vision for our sanctification together in the body of Christ that unites both Jew and Gentile. And in order to do that, he explains two things that we're going to look at closely. First, that we're free from the old law. And then he explains that we're people of a new creation who belong to Jesus. And both of those things are significant for our spiritual vision, and I want to try to help us see them. So let's start with number one, and we're going to look in the text. Let's see how clearly Paul instructs us that we are free from the old law. Just a little side note before we jump down that well. When we're talking about law in this sermon, we're talking specifically about the covenant relationship formed by the Old Testament Mosaic law. He's not saying, just notice, he's not saying we're free from concerns about righteousness. He's not saying that at all. We're not, he's not saying we're, not, we're free from instructions from God. He's not saying that either. He's talking particularly about this Old Testament relationship God had with His people through these specific stipulations in the Mosaic Law that we find there. And He's declaring we are free from the way it binds us, both in its instructional level and in the way that we would live under its curses if we had to be ruled by it. We're free. So I want to save plenty of time for talking about the second idea, but let's, let me just... Uh, let me just focus in here on this idea uh, in the text that we are free from the old law. Paul provides a lot of clarity for us in regards to the old law and our relationship to it here. Notice Paul first shows our relationship to the old law by using an illustration in verses 1 through 3. That's what we read there. He, get, he jumps into this illustration about marriage, doesn't he? And, and he's not so much giving us instruction about marriage and when it's okay to divorce and all those kind of things here. He's, he's, he's using what they already knew about marriage and when marriage ends to be able to say, we already know some things about how long a law is binding. And so he gives us illustration about marriage. Notice he's speaking with clarity to the Jewish Christians. He said, you who know the law. 
Like, this isn't unfamiliar. Let me start with what you already know. And so he starts, and as he does, he's explaining this basic maxim or axiomatic truth in regards to the law. The law is in effect until death, until someone dies. So he uses the example of the marriage covenant, and he points out that the law of marriage, the binding nature of marriage, is dissolved upon death, and the parties are free from their responsibilities to one another that, that are encumbered in that law. Does that make sense? I mean, we practically understand that, right? We, we see it even played out in our own culture and our own ways of celebrating marriages. We say, until death do us part, right? That means this relationship defined is broken by death. And, uh, and so, so he, he says, we already know this. The parties are free. Pretty simple to understand. It's totally appropriate for someone to pursue marriage after losing a spouse. And that's all he means in 1 through 3. Now here's where the illustration gets applied in verse 4. Look closely here in verse 4. Likewise, in the same way, in the same general idea, my brothers, you have also died to the law through the body of Christ. So verse 4 says, likewise, you have died to the law through the body of Christ. Just like, and this is what he's saying, just like death severed the law of marriage for the two that are bound together, he's saying the death of Christ and the new covenant created by it is the death that has severed all those who are united to him by faith from the obligations to the Mosaic law. Now that's a complicated jump, right? So what he's saying is, if you've come to faith in Christ, you've been united to Christ in such a way that a death has occurred. A death has occurred that has cut you off from that old relationship to the law. Now, how does he say that? Well, he explains here that that happens inside this union that is called the body of Christ. In this relationship with Christ, his death counts as our death under the prescriptions of the law because of our sin and in that union his resurrection life belongs to us that's what he's saying paul is just applying what he taught us earlier in chapter 6 verse 1 and verse 1 through 3 when he says by baptism we've been baptized into his death and we've been raised with him to new life that that this relationship by faith pictured in baptism isn't just sort of tangential but now we belong to Christ we're bound to Christ in a certain way that what's his is ours and what's ours has become his and it's all thrown into one pot therefore when Jesus died on the cross he paid our debt to the law and he died to that relationship and now he's risen with like an eternal resurrection future focus that we also belong to and we've been cut off in death from the old law that's what he's saying so if you have turned to Christ and by faith believed this promise, you've been baptized by the Spirit of God into this new union and should be baptized visibly as a way of picturing it. That's just a side note. Now, he, just in case we missed it, look how he says it in verse 6. Verse 6, he, he goes on, but now, currently, by faith in Christ, being in the body of Christ, Him having died the death for us, we've been released from the law. We've been released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. 
Jesus' death is applied to us. So let me make it clear. The Old Testament law has all sorts of stipulations and details in it that we are not bound to keep in any meticulous way because they were intended for Israel and its situation. And both Jews and Gentiles now alike have been released from it by faith in Jesus because of his death. Okay, that's, that's what Paul is teaching here and making clear. Let me try to illustrate that. I've been thinking about doing my taxes. And that at one time were individual things. You made decisions separately. Now, in terms of finances before the law, they're one thing. That means if Annie makes money, we made money. If I make money, we made money. That's good news, right? We, all the money is together. That's what a marriage is. It's a union where we're seen as one thing. What happens to one happens to both. It happens to the whole. Interestingly enough, if you think about it, this is exactly what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5 is that one of the purposes for marriage isn't so much that we would understand marriage from God's perspective, but that God uses marriage to help us understand the gospel. That we can understand how did God go about saving us? Well, you guys understand. This is kind of the way Paul says. You guys understand what it was like for a union to be created between two people who now all those same things apply to both. Well, that is the way God saves. Through faith, we become united to Christ and we're seen as a union before God. How does he declare us righteous? Because he just ignores sin? No, because inside our marriage to Christ by faith, spiritually, the body of Christ has already paid for its sin through Jesus Christ. Jesus has really hooked us up. That's the good news of the gospel. This is a really beneficial marriage for us. Furthermore, our sin has been transferred, our debt to the law has been transferred to Jesus and he died the death that the law demands and removed our condemnation. That's a great union. <laughs> and see, he, he, see, Paul says marriage helps us understand that, not that helps us understand marriage. Look closely at Ephesians chapter 5. So it's a glory that we would be that free. And listen, I've got good news for you today. If you came in here feeling guilt-bound, overcome with shame, knowing that you've sinned and failed before God, uh, powerless it seems to change your life, I've got good news. There is a union for you where you can be free from all of that. And you can have total hope and security today, not because somehow today you got better, but because God has promised to see you in Christ if you will trust his promise by faith because Jesus has paid the debt of the law for us. So, we're freed from the law. Now before we transition into the next point, one of the places Paul learned this was in his own conversion to Christ. You know, Paul is persecuting Christians. Jesus appears to him on the road to Damascus, and he says, Paul, why are you persecuting me? <laughs> now, Paul hadn't touched Jesus, right? He, he, he hadn't come into contact with him. He didn't do anything. It wasn't Paul who was up there. Paul is, Paul is killing Christians. He's persecuting Christians. And as he's touching Christians, because of their union with Christ, it's the body of Christ, Jesus says, you're not touching Christians, you're touching me. That's how closely Jesus identifies with us and his people. So there's this union, that means a death has occurred, and we have been severed from being bound to the law 
like Christ. So, how should Christians view the Old Testament law? Then that just, before we sort of move on, I just think it's important that we would ask the question, there's all of this instruction in the Old Testament, all of which is important. It's just a question of our relationship to it. How do we benefit from it? And, and, and so, so I want to answer the question, how should a Christian view the Old Testament law based on Paul's teaching here, which actually is just going to be a summary of what he's really telling us in 7 through 12. 7 through 12, he's dealing with this question. Hang on, it's not the law that was the problem. It's sin in us that made the law unable to transform us. And this new relationship has a power all of its own. But let's just make sure we understand there's benefits to understanding and studying the the Old Testament and looking at the law. It's just we need to put it in its right place. So I got three ways real quick. The first is the law played a role in sharpening our moral clarity. The various laws in some manner point to a moral source and general shape of righteousness and justice. He says he would not have known the danger of coveting in verses 7 through 12 if it were not for the law. There are many ways in which some moral instruction wake us up to things that we would have never thought were a problem before. And that happens through the law. And so there's a sense of increased moral clarity. There are many things in our fallen world that we can be numb toward without some moral instruction. And where the Old Testament law spoke to moral situations, there's general clarity to be gained and benefited from and reflected upon. So that's the first thing. The second thing we see is that the law played a role in revealing the sinfulness of the human heart. He he begins to unpack that in verses 7 through 12. He says, the law wasn't the problem, but, but, but when the law came to me, inside there was this, this twistedness, this brokenness of sin that said, I don't want to do that. I mean, I'm sure he was all alone in that, right? That's, a, that's just Paul's experience. But what really happened is that law began to shine a light on the fact that sin isn't just a problem of instruction, it's a problem of rebellion, <laughs> And he said, he, he describes it like it's flaring up inside him. It's like, like the law touches that part of, of his inward life where, where he just doesn't care to do what's good. Where there's a real brokenness. And it becomes more visible. We're going to see next week where he says, really what happens is it, it becomes more visible when we're, when we're uh, brought with instruction morally from the law. We, just, we realize it's not just that we needed more instruction or we were in the wrong situation. It's that inside us, something is broken that needs to be transformed. You see, the law highlights that through watching the relationship of Israel to the law, who gets all kinds of patience from God, him dwelling in their midst, instructing them, but they can't change the problem of their own hearts. And so the law played a role in revealing the sinfulness of the human heart and its need for spiritual transformation from God. Third thing, the law was realistically adjusted to the brokenness of the sinful world. That means when we read back into the Old Testament law, we were never intended to read it entirely idealistically. It's in many ways, the instructions there, some of them that might even make you scratch your head, have something to do with something specific God wanted to do to shape Israel's, uh, their life in that situation. And uh, for example, uh, the law was never intended to just be an ideal picture of every moral situation. Jesus tells us this, that it was situationally adjusted 
to deal with the real brokenness of a sinful world and its complications. One example Jesus shares in Matthew 19 is that the law of divorce in the Old Testament was given not an expression of just a divorce is fine and righteous. It wasn't given that way. He says it was given because there's a hardness of heart in the human condition that, that right now in the world that we live in means that there is brokenness and trauma and difficulty and, and, and we have to sometimes just deal to curb it. And so the law says, well, when this situation is so broken, at least deal with it this way. Okay? And, and, and so Jesus says, that was given not as an expression of righteousness, but because of the hardness of your heart to limit the damage of sin. There's a bunch of the laws that are like that. Okay? And so, so we don't look into those Old Testament laws and automatically go, this is the purity of everything that God wanted for us if we weren't so encumbered with sin. You're going to run through a whole lot of things where you're like, I wish God would have said this. I wish he would have said that about it. But, but really, he's dealing with Israel in its context, and he's trying to, trying to make sure sin doesn't spring out in ways, and the damage of it is limited. So the law was realistically adjusted to the brokenness of the simple world. Jesus tells us that much. So those are three things we should understand about our relationship to that law as we're freed from it. So with all that, Paul says, the law wasn't the problem. Verse 12, it's holy. The commandment is holy, and it's righteous and good. It's set apart. It's from God. It had a purpose. But that purpose, he says, came to an end when Jesus established the new covenant in his blood and rose from the dead. A page had turned in God's plan, and a new era had begun. And if we're going to fulfill our calling as God's people, we need to understand we're freed from the law... And we don't fulfill our calling by going back under the law, but by looking forward to the new creation. Now, that's the second point. We're freed from the law, and in our spiritual vision, we're to live as people of a new creation, to know that we are part of a new creation. I was trying to think about how to illustrate this this week. Like, what do we mean that we are a part of a new creation? What is God doing? The best way to understand it is like a lame duck presidency. All right, so we all understand this idea, right? You know, here we are, you know, in, in some November uh, where a new president has been elected. Now, from that period of time until the inauguration, the old administration is sort of functioning, right? To some degree, to whatever degree it has actually been functioning anyway. You guys were supposed to laugh at that. We live in D.C. We're naturally cynical about politics, aren't we? The old administration is still functioning, but for all intents and purposes, they're like, I've got this new great idea. Let's do this. Let's focus on this. They're like, no, you're dying. This is going away. Nobody gets fired up about the agenda of a president who has two months left and is going out of office. Similarly, what happens is a new administration has been elected, hasn't it? And for a period of time, those two administrations in their work, they overlap. One is fading, and one is emerging. One will grow stronger and continue, and its policies will rule the day. So, so what really is happening, you notice how he points to the resurrection of Jesus here? He says, in the body of Christ, we are living in the time of the resurrection, we are, we are bound with Him in chapter 6. We were baptized into His death and we've been raised with Him to walk in the new way of life. And, and all of this language that we are risen with Christ. 
that we are living in the resurrection is, is the idea that God has, there's these two stages of the plan of events. One in which sin has reigned, in which sin has dominated in many ways. It's coming to an end. Because in the midst of that world, broken in is the end time promise that we will be raised with Christ and God is renewing all things. And already, well before that time has been fully inaugurated, Jesus came in and he died the death that we deserve and he rose from the dead. One of those people for that new creation is already alive. And he's reigning. And his kingdom has begun. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, he's gathering a people under that people to be a resurrection people, to be a part of that new administration, to live under that new rule, new law, new order, new purpose. And to rejoice that we know that death is dying a death, that evil is fading, will be defeated, and that Christ in his kingdom is rising. That's where we're living. And so he says, for us to really have spiritual vision is for us to no longer fear that the domination of evil is something we have to adapt ourselves to. We live as people of the light. And even as people of the light, maybe it looks like it's impractical and we'll lose everything. We know that God is going to raise us from the dead. And in short order, everything we lost, we will celebrate the return of. This is what it means to be a Christian. We're loosened from the systems of this world and we live as a new creation with our minds and hearts set on Christ and His new administration has already taken over and it becomes the vision for how we live our life. Is everybody with me? Okay? So we, we, we see three things in this section that, that help us get inside that. What do we do? Because I want you to notice, freed from the law doesn't mean free from purpose. Freed from the law doesn't mean free from righteousness. Free from the law doesn't mean free from holiness. It means that we have a new focus, that we're a part of a new creation. And that creation is a creation where God renews all things and righteousness reigns. And we want to live as a people who believe that that day has already dawned. So look at three ways he shows it to us. The first one we see, if we're just answering the question, does free from the law mean free to do whatever we want? The answer is no, because we have a new belonging. We've been freed from the law, he says, look in verse 4, through the body of Christ so that we may belong to another. Notice how he's playing on the, the, marriage, the marriage idea right here. He's like, this old husband, the law, which was already kind of difficult, you've been cut off from, right? And now you belong to something better. You know, this is, this is good. He's, he's the best husband you could have. This is the best relationship you could imagine. You know, we have this privilege of belonging to Christ. And so he's saying, just like, he's wanting to play on this idea, just like two people in a marriage, when they come together, when it's right, when it's good, they belong to one another. And that belonging means, I want to honor that person. I no longer just think about what did I like. I'm, I'm governed by the fact that they have joys. I want them to rejoice. I want them to be honored. And so I adjust my life because I belong to this person. And so he says we've been freed from the law, but not just cut off and, and freed to do whatever we want. We belong to Christ. And so we're to set our hearts and minds on Christ and think, how do we live lives that honor Him? 
Christians who have genuine faith, while they're freed from the law, do not just go off into life doing as they please, but they begin to live to please the only one they belong to. Walking with Jesus, honoring Jesus, knowing His purposes, fulfilling His will becomes the growing desire of someone who believes the gospel. And listen, if we read the Bible, there's plenty of instruction about what that looks like. Jesus is, is constantly taking the, the pictures of the Old Testament law, fulfilling them, clarifying them, and clarifying them and instructing His people. We aren't left without instruction, but we're to not just have sort of this static, impersonal relationship to the law. We belong to Christ. It becomes the joy from our heart that we would honor Him. Our lives belong to Him. Practically speaking, that doesn't leave us without moral instruction, does it? What it does is make sure that we allow Jesus' authoritative explanation of God's heart and purpose to dictate how we read the whole Bible and we set our vision for the future on Him. The Gospels in the New Testament are full of clear moral instruction for the body of Christ as it dwells among the nations to live out a faith that embodies the righteous character of God in a fallen world. Think about 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the end of, the, uh, of chapter 6, where he says, flee from sexual immorality. Do you not know that you belong to Christ? You see, I mean, that's really clear instruction. He says, he says this is unbecoming because we've been united to Christ. We belong to Him. He has a desire for us to honor Him in a particular way. And so there's clear instruction that this is one of those application points. That Christians would flee from all types of sexual immorality because they belong to Christ and desire to honor all of His instruction. So we belong to Him. We have a new belonging. That's one way of answering the question, do, uh, free, does free from the law mean free to do whatever we want? But here's the second way. The answer is no. We have a new fruitfulness to pursue. Notice again in verse 4, it's not just that we belong to another. We belong to Him who has been raised from the dead. That's resurrection power of life in order that we may bear fruit for God. God has a purpose in the new covenant. God has a purpose in this new relationship that He's given to us through Christ. He desires a people who are genuinely fruitful from the heart. He desires that we would, we would understand His worldwide mission and be called into it and we would be a fruitful people for God. In the past, this relationship to the law couldn't produce fruit in us because it couldn't deal with sin at the level of the heart. But Jesus Christ in the new covenant, He's poured His love into our hearts. He's poured His Spirit out in us. He promises to dwell with us. And we've already tasted the first fruits of that. And, and, and right now, as we commune with Him, He begins to give life to us. And that life courses through us and it brings forth new fruit. New desires. You see, a Christian who's been declared righteous by God is being made righteous and new by the inward work of the Holy Spirit that is producing fruit in them. So it becomes the normal expectation of the Christian life that we would be a people devoted to belonging to Christ and bearing fruit. That that would begin to happen in us. We would be applying ourselves to letting that fruit be produced in us. And we would trust that we're not on our own in that, but God Himself is working in us. This is why He saved us and freed us from the law, so that we could bear fruit to God. There's two ways you can look at that fruit. 
I mean, there's a lot of clarity to it. We're not left without clarity. We think of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 22, that we would have lives that are inwardly producing love and joy, peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Many things to focus on, I think, so that we're not just free from the law, but we understand who we are that need to be worked out into actual practice. But there's also a call to fruitfulness in His mission. I think this is important for us, that we're not just sort of passively allowing ourselves to become more morally transformed, but God has saved us because His mission has gone from a single people of Israel in a place where the nations would peer in to sending His people to the nations among whom the cultures of the world hear the gospel of Christ and are not encumbered by the Old Testament law. Think about that. What that means in this new fruitfulness is really seen in the life of Peter. As Paul is evidently speaking to the Jewish Christians here, it's important to mention that this probably also includes fruitfulness in the mission of Christ to spread the gospel among the nations. In fact, the best example of it in the New Testament is seen in Acts 10 and 11, where Cornelius, we have this Gentile centurion who's not a Christian, but a God-fearing man, after a vision from God, sends for Peter the Jewish apostle, to come teach him about God, to come to his household. Now, because of the Old Testament law, Peter's like, no, I don't do that. I don't do that. Well, he has two visions. The first time, you know, he has this vision and the, you know, the blanket comes down and it's all kinds of clean and unclean animals. It's like, rise, kill and eat. Don't call, what I, don't call unclean what I've called clean. And Peter's like, no, God, I don't do that. Like, he's literally, like, gets this vision. Like, that's not, I, I'm going to keep the Old Testament law. But he needs to go into this house because the gospel needs to be declared among the Gentiles. You see, the fulfillment of the law has taken place and some of these details are not the heart of it. And they're being set aside. Jesus himself, Mark chapter 7, declares all foods clean. You know, it's a, he, he did that. And so we put our eyes and hearts on Jesus. His mission has a different shift and a focus as he's shed his blood and risen from the dead. He says, you know, in the new creation, none of this matters, right? Like, go do this right now. I've got a purpose of fruitfulness for you. Don't be encumbered by the law to keep you from following this mission. So he gives him the vision again, and he has the vision, and he says, uh, somebody comes knocks on his door and says, come on with me. And that's the only reason he goes, Right, Because he, he gets dragged, kicking and screaming, into this Gentile house. And you can just, the way it reads, it's like he's just sort of like there, you know. He doesn't want to touch anything. Certainly doesn't want to eat the bacon. And he's just like, okay, this is what it's all about. And these people get saved and the Holy Spirit fills them. And, and, and Peter is forced to say, I guess God's not a respecter of persons. His purpose is bigger than what I thought it was. See, I think this is what Paul means. We have a mission to bear fruit for God. Bear fruit. And, and, and we need to make sure we're not encumbered by things we've assumed God cares about that he really doesn't. That we would be free to pursue righteousness, but that we would be unencumbered by the Old Testament law so that we can be a people of God among the nations. People of every tribe and language and tongue. And so he's saying, you know, Roman church, Pillar church, be prepared to be fruitful for God. That's your calling. That's why you've been freed from the law. Not so that you can go live lives that you want, but to bear fruit for God in His mission. There's a new fruitfulness. And ultimately, does free from the law mean free to do whatever we want? Well, he answers, no. We have a new way of the Spirit. As we close, we see the, re- 
that really what Paul is talking about is something that God has been promising all along. Verse 6, we serve God. (laughs) That's what he means. Not under the old written code, but in the new life of the Spirit. Well, see, God had been saying all along. See, all, all that Jesus and Paul are ultimately saying is, what I'm doing is the fulfillment of what God has always been promising. That the law could not change his people, could not bring transformation to sinful hearts. But a day's coming when through a new covenant, the covenant which Jesus shed his blood for, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. My spirit will fill them and, and no longer will you have to teach the, your neighbor the law because I will, I will write my law on their hearts. Holy Spirit, the the promise of the Holy Spirit is that that now actually we have the privilege of being a people who commune with God and through that communion, as he takes his word, as he takes the relationships of the body of Christ, that the Holy Spirit begins to change in us our desires. It's a power at work in those who have come to him by faith. As we entrust ourselves to him and commune with him, that Holy Spirit is producing in us a desire for God's purposes. He shapes us to those purposes. And when we make ourselves available to Him, things that we assumed we didn't have the power to overcome, the power to set our sights on the Spirit is is drafting us up into His powerful work. And we should attune our minds, our hearts, and, and, and our lives to be able to see what the Spirit's doing, to understand from His Word what does God value so we can see what the Spirit is doing through us and in us and we follow and walk with the Spirit of God. And so he says we have a new way of serving. We're not just going off and doing what we want. We're trusting that as we pray, as we seek the Lord, as we study His Word, as we're a people together on mission, that the Spirit of God is powerful enough to draw us into the purpose of God. And that's what He does. And so we're free from the law to live as a people of the new creation. I mean, it's an amazing, amazing thought when you really step back for a second that Jesus' death for us and our union with Him means there's no condemnation, that we're pardoned and forgiven, that we've been brought into a powerful purpose that God is going to see to completion. And today, you have the opportunity to respond to that. That you can see the draws of your sinful heart and you can turn from it and you can say, Lord, I trust what you're doing. I receive this promise and I want to walk in it. And in a fresh way to God, you can just be submitted to him and let him do the work in you and through you. Let's bow our head together as we prepare for the Lord's table. Lord, we ask that your spirit would confirm your words in us. Lord, we pray that you would bring conviction to our hearts in the areas that we need it. We pray that you would fill us with the hope of the new creation. You would give us fresh vision for your kingdom that is growing and flourishing and will never be defeated. Lord, that the church would embody it as a people who know that the gates of hell will not prevail over the purposes of your kingdom. We would live with that kind of confidence and clarity as we think about our lives, and as we belong to you. 
Lord, would you help us each individually to see what you want to do in us today? Would you sanctify us by your word and by your spirit? In Jesus' name, amen. As we prepare to take...